Everything you do is alright, alright and okay It's just gonna be that way Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with LA-based jazz songwriter and recording artist Cliff Beach. He opened up about his new 2024 CD, You Showed Me the Way, along with the host of projects that occurred during the pandemic. He was born into a family with strong musical roots, and like most of the musicians that he idolized as a kid, he too grew up playing music in the church and sang regularly at home to entertain members of his family. His musical journey flourished when he got to the Berklee College of Music. There he performed in all-star showcases as well as honed in and perfected his singing, songwriting, and keyboard skills. We cover this journey so far. Enjoy. Well, yeah, man. Hey, it's great to meet you. Thanks for taking a minute out. And before we get into the new album and your life and music, you know, this last three and a half years or so, being an artist living through the pandemic has been quite a thing. How did you get through it, and how has it subsequently changed you? Oh, well... I think it changed everyone. I, I don't think there's any time you can go through something that um, massive and that not not change us. But ultimately, I think the, the beauty of it is that, you know, in, in certain Asian cultures, the word for crisis and opportunity is the same, you know, because you, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. So it forced us like to, to use things like, like Zoom and and I was able through the pandemic to be able to connect with with people and do music remotely and record albums remotely and do remixes remotely and and just think a little bit outside of the box. Um, it was tough though. And in the beginning, I remember that you know when everything shut down, there were no gigs. We were doing all of the at home concerts, and uh, I did about five or six on Instagram, and I was like, I. I don't know if this is for me, um, but uh, you know, I, I I see people pop in for a second, and you know, you pop out, and, you know, the numbers changing and stuff. And so, um, but I did actually, ironically, uh, it got picked up by CNN. They were like, "Hey, what are artists doing? Can you explain what artists are doing during the pandemic?" I was like, "Well, yeah, people are hopping on and doing these concerts." And then, like, immediately after that aired, I was like, "I'm not doing any more of these these at home concerts." Um, but I decided to actually write a book, uh, during the pandemic, which was a pivot for me. Cause I knew that was something that I could just kind of do solo alone, um, you know, walled up in the house, uh, sheltering in place, like a, a Henry David Thoreau Walden pond situation. So I was, <laughs> I was in it to win it, but yeah, so I wrote a book that took about two years to finally publish. It came out in 2022, but started in 2020. And I started a podcast as well. I did about 50 interviews um, of different musicians, just learning about um, what they were doing in the Grammys. And then later on, I pivoted into a TV show, Josh Gates Tonight. I did two seasons of being the house band leader for that. And so the pandemic was great because that show was able to be created uh, because this guy who was kind of like a, um, oh God, Indiana Jones kind of guy. But he had started the show where he wanted to interview people and and he was able to have that show to interview all these great people because of the pandemic because everybody was still at home so i think like i said there's a lot of opportunities in there but definitely was excited when music came back and it exploded uh, i mean people who who would never go out were like so happy to get out in la that they were like we're out you know all those people who were like oh i can't cross the 405 <laughs> you know we're divided by all of our our highways, um, you know, would finally be like, I'll, I'll take that drive. You know, I'll, I'll go a little further. So, so I think that was good. 
Um, and it's pretty much normalized. And then I remember, you know, I, a couple of months ago, I went out to Palm Springs and I went to see Cool in the Gang at one of the casinos and it was just packed. And I thought to myself, wow, like three years ago, I was literally at home by myself and I, and I saw no one for months. And then now it's like, wow, there's too many people <laughs> like close to me. But I think, uh, yeah, uh, I think, you know, we just, we just gravitate to whatever projects we could do and, and, and try to stay sane as much as possible. But it didn't stop us though. I think that's what we found out is that we're more resilient than we think in music or in life or anything else. And it just caused us to think about, you know, who else can I work with? Like with one of the remixes, I worked with a guy in Germany. I mean, I could have done that anyway, probably, but ultimately it was like, you know, geography doesn't hold us back anymore. There's so many ways of, of doing things that we wouldn't have thought of. And luckily we had the pandemic when there was technology. I mean, it yeah. was a hundred years ago, the Spanish flu, not much you could do <laughs> at the time. That's right. I thought about that quite a bit. That's amazing, man. You did diversify and do so many things. So, you know, the focal point here is your latest album. You showed me the way such a great mix of genres coming together. Talk to me about artistically stitching this project together. Uh, well, it's definitely a labor of love. I don't call it necessarily an Ella Fitzgerald tribute, but I do say it's inspired by Ella Fitzgerald. So they are all songs that Ella Fitzgerald did. And I did that for a number of reasons. You Showed Me The Way um, was the first song that she co-wrote for Chick Webb. And a lot of people don't know that. And it was actually done by a very young Billie Holiday first. Um, and still, I think, lesser known, you know, than her first big hit, It's a Good Task It, which we also flip and do on the record. But mostly Ella Fitzgerald tributes. There's one really great one. I know you've interviewed Greg, um, Gordon Goodwin recently, and he, he did one with Patty Austin. Um, I think they're, they're always done by women. I don't think I've ever seen anyone do any Ella music as a, as a man. It just didn't come up. And uh, she had just an amazing range, an amazing musicality, improvisation. You know, you watch the documentary, just one of those things, and they show how she does all these crazy quotations. They're like, in that one song, she's done 45 songs mixed in there. And, and I love doing matches and stuff like that, too. So that was kind of that. And then also just the love of the great American songbook. I mean, so many great writers you have. You have Duke Ellington and Fats Waller and Porter and Gershwin and and, uh, you know, I, I sent it out to some people who were really in the jazz world. And they were like, wow, this is like a jazz record, but it's not a jazz record. And it has all these styles mixed into one. And that's what I wanted. I really wanted to be able to show the breadth of what, uh, what jazz can do and, and beyond. And, and as an artist, I really wanted to stretch myself. I think, you know, jazz lends itself not only to have a sophistication and and the lyrical content, but sophistication and the melody and the range. And so as a singer, to really be able to 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 use, you know, my three octave plus range, um, I don't normally get to do that. I usually stay in the, in the funk world kind of in loops and, and kind of in that mid sweet spot. Um, so it was definitely that. And then I definitely remember since I hadn't done jazz, working with an arranger, another Berkeley cat uh, named Moon uh, from Japan, uh, we spent so much time on just the the arrangements, the level of work it took to make this album in terms of not only finding really great personnel, but we we wrote it through Compose. Like, like I sent it to one piano player and he was like, you, you put a lot of ink. <laughs> like it's just, it's just all written out, which I had never done. Like everything was very like, 
you know, by ear and by rote. And this was like, no, we're 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 making it like a classical symphony. Like this is going to be start to finish, note to note. Everything was thought out and and really well prepared. So then we dug into different styles of you know, I love Stevie Wonder and Al Jarreau, and I was like, how can we incorporate that? How can we incorporate Latin? How can we incorporate um, in one of the songs I did a quotation of of Moon Dance. I was like, how do we put you know Van Morrison in this place where it's like that that fits because I find that to be jazzy, but how does that fit into Thelonious Monk Round Midnight. It does now, you know. So I, I, you really have this blank canvas and a paintbrush where you can kind of do um, whatever you you want out of your mind's eye and and let that come forward. And every project, I always try to do something a little different. So this one is unlike any project that I've done uh, and will do. And uh, I really enjoyed uh, the process of doing it. So everything began for you in the church. That's where roots were were musically sewed for you. Take me back to your childhood and how this love of of not only jazz, but mixing the genres and having your very unique voice. How did all of this evolve into you today? No, that's a great question. Well, I come from uh, many different churches. Uh, all my family pretty much are ministers. I'm the black sheep, one of the ones that isn't. Uh, but I tell people that I'd rather perform on a stage than preach on a pulpit. But there's a lot of parallels, you know, a lot of that transference of energy, call and response. And I put that into the the music. A lot of the artists, obviously, that a lot of us love came from uh, the church growing up. You look at it, Aretha Franklin or James Brown or Al Green um, and many and many others. Uh, you know, Ray Charles, everyone has those elements. And so... Um, I think gospel, again, it really helps you to develop a really great ear for music. And uh, and I think why I'm able to do a lot of harmonies and stuff, a lot of my extended family, they had a, a version of church where they, uh, like Footloose, outlawed, outlawed dance, they outlawed uh, instruments. <laughs> and so you could only sing. And so my family is very adept in singing and it's very intricate, six-part harmony like, uh, you know, everyone's like a mini take six <laughs> or Manhattan transfer. And so as a kid, uh, as my voice was changing through the years, um, you know, you just show up and they're like, you're alto today. You know, <laughs> like you're the brown today. You're tenor. You know, you're, you're falsetto today. Okay. Okay. So it's like, I was always just finding out where do I fit in? Where do I fit in? I was like the little one uh, following all these great people around. And so um, as I just kind of grew up in a bunch of gospel choirs and and studying that music and listening to great piano players and organists and and then later into jazz and R&B, listening to, to clavinet and, and other stuff. It really just helped me to to understand that pretty much anything is possible. But ultimately for me, it also allows me to inject a lot of joy into the music, a lot of jubilance. And I say that I make kind of secular gospel in a way. I want it to be for the people, for the masses, uh, not necessarily for people who ascribe to a certain religion because I feel like music and and joy is for everyone. So now that you're in this profession and, and you've made it to this point where you're performing live, was there always a stage or a venue that you wanted to play at, you dreamed about, and you finally did it? Oh, yes. I mean, many stages and, and, and definitely... Um, Mordecai, we moving in LA, playing on the Sunset Strip. That was a big deal when I came 20 years ago. And so definitely did that. But actually, we're gearing up to, to very soon, uh, be at the NAM conference. And we're finally playing the main stage, the Grand Plaza stage, the Yamaha stage this year. 
that has been done by people like Gorman Goodwin, but also bands like Tank and the Bangas, et cetera. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it shows the trajectory of, of sticking with it. And I tell people all the time, nothing that I did ever worked out exactly the way I wanted the first time. So I always have to, to, to beg and beg and beg to finally get to get up there, whether it be being endorsed by Nord or, or anything. And so um, what, what happened essentially a handful of years ago, um, I was like, I want to play NAMM. And the first year, they were like, oh, we don't have a spot for you. But Bedine Audio is looking for people to play these shipping containers. And I was like, okay, great. And then the, we were like in these cargo containers recording music in this fishbowl in front of an audience that we can't touch in, in this kind of vacuum. And that was cool. And we released an album live from them. I think that was in 2019. And then um, CNN picked that up. And that's how I got to you know, have the connection with the CNN people. And then from there... We came back and and we said let's do Nam again. They're like we don't have a spot for you, but Jam in the Van wants to do some some cool video recording and put them on YouTube. Can you do that? And so I was like, sure, let's do that. And then finally after that, they were like, hey, can you do the side stage? And I'm like, sure. And then finally like, hey, can you do the main stage? I'll say absolutely. So uh, you know, it just took a few few steps, but music is not a linear path. But yeah, that was that's still something I'm really looking forward to because that stage is gigantic. The sound is great. It's right in the middle of everything. Everybody will see it. So it's the biggest music conference on the West Coast and in LA specifically. And so, um, you know, I see Stevie Wonder walking around every year. I see uh, people, um, you know, great musicians, drummers, guitarists. I, I've seen so many clinics and so many things. So just to be on that roster, bands at them on their website, you know, on the main stage, it's a, it's a big coup. And I, I don't take the full credit for it, my whole band. And the team make the dream work, obviously, but super excited to be able to uh, to showcase that this year. And that was definitely a few stepping stones to get there. So speaking of live performance, what was the first live show, whether jazz or otherwise, that you witnessed that blew you away, that made you think, I want to be up there one day? Oh, I mean, I saw so many concerts, but in gospel, one of the first concerts that I remember seeing that was just like, wow. Um, in D.C., I went to see the artist Kirk Franklin, who was won tons of Grammys, and I've talked to people like Phil Lasseter, who was his home player for a long time. Um, and basically, he's like a mini gospel prince. Like, and Actually, he doesn't. <laughs> Ironically, he does not sing. He speaks <laughs> um, in, in a certain cadence, but it's not rap. And then he, uh, but he plays piano and he writes all the great songs. And he writes so well for vocals for choirs without singing. Uh, but essentially, I know he had had a tragic accident at one point as a kid where he um, was at a concert and he fell backstage and like was unconscious. And so after that, he just came back and was fine and, and exploded. But I saw him and just seeing like, wow, this, this man dances with so much energy that he puts into the music and, and everything about it. And really, you know, growing up, I was only allowed to listen to gospel music, but he was a pioneer in crossing over into pop and R&B. And so in his gospel, he would pull artists like George Clinton, who I became a huge fan of, who just got a Hollywood Walk of Fame a star, um, into it. And so it, it it gave me forays of, of funk and really started to show me the underpinnings of like in the American roots, how all those musics kind of come together and how they pull from each other. Uh, but yeah, that was one of the first concerts that I saw where I was just like, in this huge stadium and uh 
and just everybody was excited and and it was just it was just really good it wasn't even about being in a genre like it happened to be gospel music but i mean just the level of the musicianship and the players and how they put the music together and how they sang and just the talent that was there and and people from that band have gone on to do you know work with tyler perry and other stuff and and so it just showed like the range of how how good they they were but definitely like I would say that and seeing, you know, Michael Jackson stop the Simpsons and premiere video, those were like the first things of like, wow, I want to do that. I want to do exactly what that guy is doing when I grew up. When I was a kid, my dad won tickets to the Michael Jackson victory tour in 85 and we were an arrowhead. And when that glove came up out of the ground, cause there was a little hole, <laughs> man, dude, there was people fainting. It was just, it was and the, the light they had on it and the sparkles. It like, it just like was the, the a glamorized mirror ball just hit us all in the iris. It was crazy. Mm -hmm. So Yeah. I didn't get to go when I was a kid, my aunt and my great grandparents, they took her to the bad tour. They were like, we're not going to take you because you're you're too young. I was like five or six. And then uh, and then after that, he stopped touring America. So I never got to see him. But I do always tell people that, like, not only was he an artist that could stop primetime television, which nobody was ever to do again, but he also was the only artist I've seen make grown men cry. I mean, they cut to a video. I'm just bawling, like bawling, yeah. like like the Beatles with, with schoolgirls. I've never seen it. I was like... The energy and people do they faint and again like i said the parallels between church we had you know passes they would they throw their jacket and people would pass out same thing it looked exactly the same uh -huh. the people just getting hyped up yep totally so what is the what is the joy what is the best part of being a professional musician for you you obviously have live performance recordings all of these things that go into it but what wakes you up every day and really makes you tick as a musician um, I mean, it's always different. I've been flowing different. There's so many different aspects of it. I, I definitely will say that the songwriting aspect for me is huge. Um, I think also, you know, from a business perspective and licensing perspective, writing your own songs, that, that's definitely an avenue. And so there's some singers that didn't write. But, you know, I like to see even artists that you don't think about, like an Ella Fitzgerald, like she did co-write, you know, a handful of songs. Even Frank Sinatra co-wrote a handful, a few. And so um, I think it's, I think it's good. I think, I tell all my band members, I was like, everyone should have a project. Everyone should make at least one album, you know, to know what that's like. And then from there, I think, yeah, everyone should write a few songs too, just to kind of know uh, the feeling. And no, I'm not talking about ChatGPT and AI, right? Write it yourself, you know, you are, you are the AI because um, the experiences that you go through, I think for me, the singing and writing, it's, uh, it's cathartic. And so having that outlet is, it's something I, I'd go crazy without it. Um, there's some there's some ways where when you're singing, you can get out of an emotion that I don't think you can really get out any way else. Um, and so for me, music in its purest form, it's like people say, you know, you would do it for free. I mean, you want to do it for money, but you would do it for free because you love it so much. It's a part of you and, and you have to do it. And so, um, yeah, I would say definitely singing in its purest form, just to get energy and emotion out there. And I just love it so much. And then definitely the songwriting. I mean, there's, it's always great to be able to cover. And I did a lot of covers in this album, but there is one original. And, and I love always putting at least one original to show people, wow, you know, I really do enjoy songwriting. And, and I've been fortunate to win songwriting awards, like the John Lennon Songwriting Contest and World Songwriting Awards and stuff. So I'm always putting stuff out there. 
But uh, I tell people all the time, you know, do you. No one can say that you did you wrong. You know, only you know. But sometimes if you don't do it, then that song, you know, that we love so much, we may never get to to hear. And you're getting to add to that songbook, you know. That's why we have a, a Duke Ellington and a Cole Porter, because they put the songs out there. And they were like, let's do something different than what was done before. So if you could get into a time machine and go back in time and see one jazz performance, where are you going? <laughs> well, I tell everybody, you don't go past 68. And you know what? But yeah. for me, um, <laughs> there's, there's so many great, um, oh gosh, jazz performances. Wow. I mean, I'd love to see some really cool Montreal um, stuff. You know, I tell people that Ella, she had this kind of live period. You can definitely hear in the 60s even into the early 70s where she just like, she was a little weathered and she didn't care. <laughs> and and I love that. And <laughs> yeah. so, uh, uh, you know, you just, just, you just leave it all out there. And so, yeah, I think seeing some of those, some of those concerts in the early 70s would be amazing. Uh, from the jazz world, definitely, um, you know, Ella and a lot of the Montreal stuff. And then I would say also, Fillmore West, which is no longer around. A lot of the concerts there, you look at like Aretha um, live at the Fillmore West, or even Aretha's gospel album that finally came out after 30 years as a documentary, that in that church would be amazing to have seen yeah. live. And you see people like Mick Jagger in the audience, and they're just like blown away. So, yeah. and, and James Brown in the 70s, I think, you know, by Sex Machine, I would love to see that live at Olympia concert too. I'm reading a book on the Apollo. It's kind of an illustrated version. And, you know, all James started there. I mean, he had to get clothes from people because he didn't have threads. And Ella, I, you know, they always talk about her first time and how mm -hmm. hardcore it is. That I would love to just be at one amateur night just to see the mayhem. Because they had somebody that, uh, man, what they call? Oh, Port, his name was Porto Rico, and he had a broom, and he would just whack people off stage if they were bad. And they got into the the people that did good just as much as they booed everybody off the stage. But I remember that as a kid. When I'd see that show come on, I would be like, what, what, what is this? And it was wild, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I went <laughs> once. I went once on a field trip as a kid, probably in summer of eighth grade, to an amateur night on Wednesday, Wow. And uh, and they had the Sandman there and the stuff. Yeah, it was crazy. And I remember, um, you know, because it was predominantly black, they had this one rock band and the rock band was, they just turned up to 11, like every amp was cranked. <laughs> and people booed from the first note, but they couldn't kick them off because it was so loud. They just over blew all the booze. And I was like, I respect everything you've done, that you just knew that it was going to get booed and you you just didn't care. But also, I was like, people people will give you, the audience will give you, like, you know, they'll tell you the truth. Yeah. You know, if you need to, if you need to work on it or whatever, you know, Lauren Hill and other people, I mean, they get booed and it's fine. And then they still say, hey, I have some stuff to learn and to grow and, and that's a learning opportunity for them. But then people they love, like, they really support you and rally around you and that stuff too. And someone like Ella, I mean, you know, Ella was trying to come to dance. And she got so nervous. She's like, these other girls are too good. I'm not going to dance. And she starts singing. And if she didn't, we may never have ever heard her. Yeah. Same way. But Nat King Cole, he's at, a, he's at a club in LA playing piano. And they're like, hey, which one do you sing? And she's like, nobody. It's like, well, if you don't sing, you're not getting paid. And he's like, straighten up and fly right. So, you know, like people get 
those opportunities that we just wouldn't have known otherwise uh, because music is not a linear path. So we're, we're happy and fortunate that we had uh, the Apollo for so many years. The people like Steve Harvey and others that championed. No, you got to rub that log for luck and just uh -huh. get That's up it. and do your best. That's right. That's right. Um, so everyone has a perception of you, family, friends, fans, but you run the show. What's your perception of you? Who do you think you are? Oh, I mean, I'm always changing. Uh, really, I'm just looking in the mirror every day trying to become the better self than yesterday. You know, I'm always kind of putting out things that I love and enjoy. But I think when people see me or what I see as myself, I see myself as a as a true artist. I, I, I march to my own drum. Um, I make my own beat if I need to. And people think, you know, the dancer is crazy because they can't always hear the music. But that's not a me problem. That's a them problem. And so as I continue to just become better, I just don't let anything stop me. I'm a person that's like an ant. If, you, if something's in my way, I'll go over it. I'll go under it. I'll go around it. I'll go through it and figure it out. And it takes time. And it takes money. It takes discipline. But uh, but I've cultivated that all within with me. So ultimately, you know, people look at me sometimes and they're like, oh, he's a machine. I'm not. I'm a human. I have feelings and things happen and I get rejected and all sucks. But, you know, I feel the fear and I do it anyway. At the end of the day, it's like, <laughs> do it or don't do it. The time is going to pass either way. So get out there and do it. Well said. So if anyone wants to pick up the new album, delve into all of these different pursuits that are a part of your world, where's the best place to go? Oh, it's going to be out on everywhere. There's limited editions on CDs, so they can hit me up on social media, Access Music, it's on Bandcamp. And then from there, uh, it'll be on all streaming platforms as well. Um, so you showed me the way. Uh, check it out. I think it's going to be a great listen for everybody. It is. I love it. Cliff, this has been great, man. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your story. Best of luck with the album. Have a great 2024. You too as well. We'll talk soon. Thanks for listening and tuning into another Neon Jazz interview where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players and minds in LA, New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to Cliff for his time, energy, and cool. If you want to hear more Neon Jazz interviews, you can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to us at YouTube. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. It's gonna be, it's gonna be. Neon Jazz.